listening to the Creating a Brand podcast, where we deliver weekly masterclass interviews on topics to help you make your first or next step in business the right one. I'm your host, Alex Sanfilippo. Have you ever found yourself saying the following statements? I'm always so busy and overwhelmed at work, or work is always crazy. First off, you're not alone, my friend. In today's episode, I am joined by DHH, David Hannemeyer Hansen, and we'll be talking through his book titled, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Now, throughout David's career as the co-founder of Basecamp, the creator of Ruby on Rails, the best-selling author of multiple books, and so much more, with all of his achievements, you'd think that crazy would be part of his normal work life, but it's not. David has found that work doesn't have to be crazy at all. In fact, he has proven the opposite can be true. Today's conversation will help you create a culture of productivity and calm. For links to resources that will be mentioned during this episode, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 080. And now, here is my conversation with David Hannemeyer Hansen. David, welcome to the Creating a Brand podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I have to mention this, and I, I talked about in the intro a little bit as well, but you are extremely accomplished and diverse. I think you have to be the only racing driver slash software creator out there. Am I, am I right in saying that, or do you know more? There are a few. There's actually uh, like a little subculture, I think, of, uh, really? of programmers who've gotten interested in, in race car driving. Not a lot, though. Not a lot. Okay. Not a common combination. Yeah, and we're not going to talk about this much today, but are you still racing today? Is that something you're still into? I actually just raced, uh, not this past weekend, but the weekend before at the 12 hours of Sebring. Um, oh, wow. And that was a lot of fun. I think I'm coming towards the end of my pro racing time, if you want to call it that, like the big events and the big productions. I still like being in a racing car, but now I've done it for 12 years straight, where it's been mm. probably my predominant hobby for about two months out of the year. Wow. So uh, I think um, I'm ready to to slow down a little beyond that. Gotcha. Well, very cool. Well, I definitely don't want to spend too much time talking about that, although I could spend an entire conversation <laughs> learning more about that, that life because it's always been very interesting to me. But I really want to cover uh, your book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And I'm actually holding a copy of it right now. And I love the cover of this thing. Uh, David, you guys did a great job with it. It's just got an X in the middle of it. And behind that X is 80 hour work weeks, packed schedules, super busy, endless meetings, and many other things. And under it, you just say it doesn't have to be crazy at work, which uh, I think is something that's actually very counterculture. Even though we move to a more of a remote world, it's still counterculture. It's still you need to put in long hours, you still need to do meetings, even though they're now just over Zoom. And I, I really wanted to start off this conversation with asking you a question about this. When you launched Basecamp, did you have an idea that this is the way you wanted to run it? Or is it something that you learned or something maybe that took a lot of time for you to do? Where, where did this come into play for you? I think it's a combination of both. So when we created Basecamp, I was living in Copenhagen, Denmark, where, I don't know, funnily enough, I find myself back in Copenhagen, Denmark after living in the United States for 15 years. Um, but obviously at, at that time, I'd been living in Denmark all my life. So I had a Danish perspective on work-life balance, which was one where I never knew anyone who were putting in 60, 70, 80 hours a week. It wasn't even part of my universe for hmm. people to work like that in, uh, in contrast to what it is in the US. But then the second thing was how we got started. And Basecamp got started as a side project. 
it was not something where we sacrificed everything and risked everything to chase this crazy, unlikely dream, which is sort of the standard entrepreneurial mythology that so many entrepreneurs wrap themselves in. No, we started it on the side. It was a zero risk thing since we didn't give up our existing business um, base camp at that time was known as 37 signals and we were doing creative work for clients web design and web application implementations simply as consultants so we had that work going that was paying the bills and then there was some time left over and we spent that time left over to create basecamp i spent at that time about 15 hours a week i was actually still in school so almost the opposite of this um, foundation myth that so many software companies found themselves in where they're like, oh, and then our founders, they, they quit their jobs and they only had like three months of, I don't know, rent to pay. And then they took a triple mortgage on the house and like, aren't they brave? Don't they deserve everything? Because they risked so much for this impossible dream. That was never a perspective that appealed to me. I was much more interested in like, how can we do something with the least amount of risk, with the least amount of sacrifice? And then if it doesn't work out, no big deal. Then we'll just go back and do our consulting work and maybe we'll try again later. And that's exactly, actually, in fact, what happened prior to Basecamp, which turned out to be this big success that we're still working on now, 16, right. 17 years later. We created another piece of software um, prior to that, I think about a year and a half in advance, two years in advance. Um, actually, the first project I worked with Jason, my business partner at Basecamp on, uh, called Single File, which was this web applications for tracking your book collection, and lending it out and so on. And like, yeah, there just weren't that many people who were interested in buying software for tracking their book collection. I mean, perhaps right. surprise, surprise, <laughs> but it was still a great experience. We didn't risk or sacrifice anything. And when it didn't work out, no big deal. Not only was it not a big deal, it was fine. It was great. We got to build something from scratch, which taught us a lot. And we rolled all those lessons into Basecamp. Um, so when we launched Basecamp, it wasn't exactly our first time at the rodeo, even if it was our first success. Um, and I think that that's such an important kind of counter melody to put out there. The idea that entrepreneurship does not equate extreme risk, extreme sacrifice. Because the problem is when you define entrepreneurship as those things and those things only, it really limits who is quote unquote allowed to do it. Who can risk everything? Who doesn't have any um, sort of obligations in their life or other um, restrictions that kind of doesn't gel well with the idea of spending all your waking hours and all your money and mortgaging everything on this uh, on this thing. I'm a huge fan of the side project approach. This idea of creating something on the side while you're doing something else. And then if it turns out well, if it turns out that it has traction and looks like it's going somewhere, that's when you put in and say, okay, let's do this full time. Because by the time you then make that decision, it's no longer this um, super long odds thing. I was never a gambler. I absolutely hate gambling. I hate anything where the odds are not in my favor, or at very least where the odds are not quite clearly um, distinguished. So starting Basecamp in this way, without the extreme work approach, without 
the 60, 80, 100 hours a week mythology uh, help us set a course that we've been able to maintain until this day of having a calm, sustainable company that simply just does great work. And I can be incredibly passionate, incredibly interested in the work. I'm, a, uh, I'm in love with programming still after all these years. And you know what? I can be those things and still close my laptop at five or as it is right now, I'm in Europe, I work 11 to seven. So at seven o'clock I close and it's, and it's over and that's it. And it's eight wonderful hours. Um, it doesn't have to consume your life. That's another kind of uh, purity test that's often put in front of entrepreneurs that unless you live and breathe this thing and think about it 24 seven, you're not serious. You can be plenty serious. You can be plenty passionate. You can be plenty good because that's really what it comes down to, right? When it, you look at uh, what is someone going to buy? They're going to buy something good, whether you put in 60 hours or 80 hours or 100 hours. They can't tell, right? It's the same right. joke as with, uh, with, with the internet. Like on, uh, on the internet, no one knows if you're, a, if you're a cat on the other end, right? As long as you can right. type, as long as you can put something out there, um, it equalizes everything else. And I think that that's really been instructive to see just how we've run the company at Basecamp that... Uh, it didn't require those things. We ended up with the same or better results than many of our peers in the industry. And we got to stick around for two decades. Yeah, you just you shared a lot of just valuable information there. And I think the big thing I want to continue this conversation with is just this idea of calm versus crazy. And a lot of what you said, it's kind of the American way to make it crazy. We, we wear a badge of honor when it's when it's crazy. And you work 80 hours a week, you come home and it's like you've earned your stripes, right? Like you've, you've earned it for some reason. And in my corporate life, man, I really, I fell into that for years. I really kind of let that define who I was. It was interesting. I'll share this quick story. When I was a child, I remember at one point going to work with my dad for some reason and realizing people were handing him papers, telling him there's a meeting waiting on him. He had phone calls waiting right when he walked in. I was like, I want to be important like that one day. So I'm just, I'm a, I'm a product of the American culture that I've been in. However, the older I've gotten and actually had that happen to me at one point, I realized it's the most terrible place on earth to be. It's called middle management. And uh, it's not where anybody should ever want to be. But I realized at that point, there had to be a different approach to this because I wasn't going to lose all of my hair by the time I was 30. And I'm past 30 now, I made it. But um, I wanted to make sure that I could have a calm approach. And what you've done here is really enabled people and given them permission to do that. So I really want to talk about this idea of crazy versus calm you've got a lot of different ideas in this book that really cover it, man. I think you did a great job with it. I think the first place to start, though, is to talk about the quality of an hour and what this means in your book. Yes. The quality of an hour is really foundational to be able to escape the crazy work life. Because the crazy work life, at least on the cover, is all about being able to do more to be more productive, to handle more things at the same time and juggle it all and ace it. And those things are poorly compatible with the way most people work. Because the way most people work is they focus a lot on just how much sacrifice and how many hours they put in. That's the inputs, right? They don't focus on the quality of those inputs. And the quality of an hour is approximately defined as in, is it part of a string or is it not? What is the quality of one isolated hour? If you get just one hour and then you have to do something else and then you get one hour and then you have to do something else, those two hours do not have the value of two hours that are being served to you in continuation. When you slice up your workday into tiny little work moments, 
you have a really hard time getting into the flow, getting into the zone. And that's where a lot of people make the bulk of their progress, right? Like it's, if you take a 40 hour work week, normal 40 hour work week, a lot of the core progress on the projects that really matter to them might happen in as little as five hours. Because mm -hmm. that's the time where they can really, okay, now I'm in it. Um, I'm sure plenty of people have had this experience where they've been working on something for two weeks or they've been supposed to work on something for two weeks. They haven't really gotten traction. <laughs> they've done a lot of other things. They've had a lot of conversations. They've sent a lot of emails. They've checked up on a lot of things. They've read a lot of things on the internet. They've done a lot of other things. And then suddenly they have this one day where they get like four or five hours in a row with no interruptions and you get more done than you did in the past two weeks, right? That is really at the essence here that when you take hours, you put them together and you get a string of uninterrupted time, three, four, five hours in a row, you can make these quantum leaps in whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's writing or whether it's marketing or whether it's programming or design or any of these other activities that we do, they're not on a linear scale and you can't just input poor quality, low quality hours and get the same uh, output. So at Basecamp, we really focus on the quality of the hour. It's so much more important. 40 hours a week is plenty. Like we usually say 40 hours is, is plenty and eight hours a day is enough, right? Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people cannot even get close to quote unquote maximizing eight hours out of a day. Most people, if they are so lucky, if, if I ace a day where I really feel like, man, this was a slam dunk of a day. I, I made a huge leap. I got something implemented. I got something shipped. I'll be working like, what, four, five hours where they really just all matter, right? And then there's another handful of hours that are some coordination or checking up on some other things. Most people don't even get close to that. Right? They have a work day that perhaps starts at nine and then they have 45 minutes before they have to be on this one call. And then they have another half an hour before they have to be on the other call. And then maybe there's two hours, but it's cut short by lunch. And then at the end of the, the day, the closest you've seen to continuation is like 90 minutes. And people are somehow surprised that they don't get anything done during that time. They shouldn't be surprised at all. It's completely predictable that you can't make progress like that, that you need long stretches of uninterrupted time. That is the fertile ground where productivity is reaped. And there's not really a hack. You can't just show, throw in more hours. In fact, the opposite of it happens when people feel like, oh, I'm not getting enough done. They think I need more. I need mm -hmm. more hours, right? Which oftentimes mean I need, I, I'll get less exercise. I'll get less sleep. I'll get less proper food. I'll get less social connections. I'll get less of all these other things, right? But I'll get more hours. Well, you've just lowered the quality of those hours even further, right? Yeah. Study after study has just shown what happens to your mental faculties when you starve your brain of sleep, of exercise, or nutrition. So these kind of shortcuts that people think that they can take really are short-sighted. They're not shortcuts. They're short-sighted. And they end up doing the opposite of what they pretend to be, right? You end up working ever more hours, ever harder, getting ever less done, being ever more cranky, getting ever more fat, getting ever more literally dumber. Right. Why would, why would you do that? that? That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, like you're saying, the quality of an hour. You know, I actually first learned this in a similar example that you gave in the book. I learned it on an airplane. 
I remember I was flying to, it was a six hour flight. So I think it was to like Los Angeles or something like that. And told my wife, I'm going to write one blog post on the way there for my, my, my blog I was writing at that point. And on the way back, I was going to write one more. I ended up writing 12. And I got home and I could not understand. I'm like, how did I do this? I'm not the guy who has like the TV on the background or plays on social media when I'm at home. But I do things that are what you call productive instead of effective. And that's really what I want to kind of go in this conversation. And I'm actually on page 51, you say, not doing something that isn't worth doing is a wonderful way to spend your time. And I think that's so important because for me, I realized I was doing all these productive things. I'm giving air quotes there, but I wasn't working toward an hour that was really quality, really productive. So I want to hear your difference between effective and productive. One good way of illustrating this is I used to, for many years, run Inbox Zero. So this is this approach to managing your email. Yeah, I still do. Uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, here it comes. All right. Where you try to process everything that comes into your inbox right away because that's how you get to zero. So you never fall behind. You don't have this mountain of email. There's some good intentions behind that. But the problem with that approach is that you put your schedule in someone else's hands. Now, Anyone in the world who happens to email you at, say, 9.30, you'll be checking that email probably within 15 minutes of that, and you'll see like, oh, there's an email. I should do something about that, right? And the Inbox Zero GTD approach is if it takes less than two minutes, you should just do it right there, right? Right. Which is a very mechanical way of thinking about time. And it doesn't work because the problem is if, if you are as addicted to email as, as many people are, you won't just be checking your email once a day, right? Like if, if you did that, maybe inbox zero wouldn't be so bad, but you'll end up checking your email 10, 20, 50 times a day, which means that you're peppering your entire day with these tiny micro interruptions where you're in the middle of something and then for whatever reason, you end up checking your email or, or God forbid you have notifications turned on. Notifications is the probably single worst feature of any software product ever. It is yes. designed to destroy your momentum and your motivation by sapping it constantly with these tiny pellets of like, ding, something new, ding. And because of this slot machine mechanics of email where like one in every 10 or 50 or 100 emails is like really important and you're really glad you saw it right away, you end up thinking that every single email that comes into your inbox could be one of those. So you check it out right away. And if you're in on an inbox zero schedule, you'll deal with it right away. So you're forcing all these micro interruptions on yourself all the time. Um, that's working, right? You're getting back to people. You're, you're, you're responsive, you're fast. Uh, lots of people will even commend you for that. They'll be like, whoa, I got a response back to you in five minutes. Wow, you're really so productive. And the truth is, no, you're not, right? You're squandering your productive hours on these micro interruptions. And those interruptions, every single time you spend two minutes on an email, it's not like you can just jump back into hyper-focus mode and really make keep on writing the seventh blog post, right? It doesn't work right. like that. When, when you break the flow, it takes a while to get back in the flow. There's been a number of studies with programmers, how long it takes for them. If they have a 10-minute interruption, how long does it take to get back in the flow? Several of those studies have shown it can take up for half an hour or 45 minutes. So you think, oh, it just cost me two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. No, no, no. It cost you 45 minutes to respond mm. to that, right? Wow. You do that a couple of times during the day, boom, you've worked, but you haven't made any progress and it doesn't make you happy. That's the other thing, right? It is so common that 
people who work on this scheme, um, whether it's literally within box zero or they're generally just responsive or fill their day with meetings or, or what have you, end up sitting on a Friday afternoon thinking, man, it feels like I worked so hard, but what did I get done this week? Like, I can't, I can't pinpoint like the thing I made progress on. I was supposed to do all these things. Like on Monday, I thought I was going to be pro- finished with this project and that project. And now it's Friday. I haven't even made a dent in any of those two projects. I did a bunch of other things. I can't quite put my finger on what it is though. Um, and that is the trap that so many people fall into. There's always an unlimited amount of work you could be doing. That's the other thing about like whether you work 60 hours or 80 hours a week. It, it, it doesn't even make a dent. If you're, particularly if you're running your own thing and if you're building something, there's an unlimited amount of uh, resources you could put into that. You could work a thousand hours a week and it still not be exhausted, right? Like there could still be more. There could be the thousand and the one hour you could put into it and you could make everything just a little bit better. Um, so you have to draw the line regardless. And drawing the line at around 40 hours a week have proven itself over decades of studies to be pretty effective. In fact, the whole idea of the 40-hour work week came about because a, a series of studies showed that it was simply the more productive way to work. That if you made someone work longer than 40 hours a week, you ended up with less. They ended up making more mistakes that needed to be rectified. And before you knew it, they were less productive than, than people who, um, who work fewer hours. So it, that sense of productivity is tied to volume. Right, like productivity is literally volume over time. How many emails did I write? How many to dos did I get checked off? And those things are not the thing that matters at the end of the day. You can spend an entire week on just one thing. If that thing truly matters and getting that finished is is a, a major milestone, it'll be worth so much more than answering a hundred emails or checking off a right. hundred insignificant to-dos, right? So these things are not linear and we get trapped into thinking about it when we focus so much on number of emails, whether it's the inbox zero or it's how many we respond to a day or how many to-dos we check off or how many hours we actually work. It's not a good way of looking at effectiveness, which is, am I doing work that matters? that matters to myself, such that I'm satisfied at the end of a long work week and actually filled with a sense of purpose and and just satisfaction of it. Like the best days that I have um, are the ones where at the end of the day, I go like, you know what? That was a good day's work. I don't, I don't need to do any more. I can close the computer now. I made some real progress. And I close that computer and I go like, that was a great day's work. And the worst days are the ones where I get to, to five o'clock and I, I didn't do it. I didn't, I said, I, I had some ideas in my head. I had some plans about what I wanted to do. And then I got pulled in a thousand different directions. Now it's five o'clock. And like, I, I, I want to work more because I haven't gotten that satisfaction of a, a good day's work. And when you have that mental image of what a good day's work looks like and the fact that you can get to that feeling off just this three or the four hours of, of really strong focused work, um, it, it is like an epiphany, right? You realize that, uh, as we talked about, the number of hours doesn't matter, the number of to-dos checked off doesn't matter. There's something more uh, essential, more or more sort of concrete about it where you just like, you have that feeling, you tick it off. And it, it's, 
it's difficult and it's fleeting. And even though it's something I've been focused on for, for many years now, it, it still gets away from me, right? Like that's the other thing. You can't like learn to be effective just once. It's not a list of yeah. intellectual lessons where just like, oh, now I know and therefore I can. No, you constantly drift and you're constantly pulling all these different directions. And our modern both work life and technology makes it incredibly hard for us to, to stay in that mode, right? Like there's a thousand different things that wants to get just a little slice of you, just a little slice of your brain. And each individual things doesn't seem like it's a big deal. You add it all up and it's a huge deal. And it's a major so source of both lack of progress, lack of productivity, but also despair, the sense of, of, of going for long stretches of time and feeling like um, it, we didn't move forward. It's just a terrible feeling of waste. And that's one I tie directly to sort of other strains of interest in my life, like philosophy, which is the study of how to live a life well. Like uh, I have this image as have been defined by the Stoics of getting to the last day and thinking, I blew it. I wasted my time and now it's the last day and I look back upon that with regret. Like That's a real image of focus for me, not to end up there. We'll get right back to today's episode, but first, can you do two things for me? First, if you're enjoying this episode, please share it on your social media or share it directly with somebody that you know that would also benefit from listening. Secondly, please visit creatingabrand.com slash free to join the Creating a Brand Inner Circle. This is where I share exclusive content, including online courses, how-to videos, and other resources focused on helping entrepreneurs go further faster. By doing these two things, you are helping me reach and serve more people. So thank you in advance for your support. And now let's get back to today's episode. You know, that actually leads perfectly into this next one I, I want to bring up. And it's, again, it's crazy versus calm, right? So a lot of things that really keep us stuck are the inbox is one. The other one is what you call calendar Tetris. I, I read that and smiled because I knew exactly what it meant. I'll let people pick up a copy of the book to get more into that. But what I want to mention is calm means getting comfortable with enough. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we have to do if we want to get to the end of our lives and be able to say, like, wow, I, I made it meaningful, right? More than just I was productive, I was busy, I was this. We have to get comfortable with enough. Can you explain what that has meant for you personally and even for Basecamp? Yeah, enough is such an alien concept to the American psyche, I think, that um, it's one of the reasons why we focused on it, both in its specific sense of what does enough mean to you? What is enough success? What is enough work? What is enough productivity? Um, but also in very concrete senses, for example, of don't have goals. Goals is like the antithesis of enough. When you have goals that are defined as very specific milestones. Oh, I want to get to 10,000 customers. I want to get to 100,000 customers. I want to get to $1 million in revenue. I want to get to $10 million in revenue. I want to get to uh, five employees. I want to get to 20 employees. The thing with goals is that they, they never stop, right? <laughs> They're a brief reprieve when you reach them, and then instantly you will set another, right? Goals keep you on a treadmill and prevent you from reaching the satisfaction of enough. You can get addicted to this notion of meeting or beating goals. And then at the same time, you can end up beating yourself up 
over something that's actually going totally nice, totally well, just because it didn't meet that goal. If your goal was to get to uh, $5 million in revenue and you ended up at 4.2, are you now a failure? Like you get to define yourself um, whether you look upon a situation or a set of circumstances as though that's a failure or that's a success. It's the same reason why we push back against this notion of small being a stepping stone. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who look at the early days of entrepreneurship as like, this is just something I have to get through. Like I'm two people right now. I'm one person, right? Like I just got started. I just got to get through this. It's got to get to two and then I got to get to 10 and then I got to get to hundred. And like, they have this image in their head, like at 300, that, that's where I'm going to be happy. That's when I'm going to feel like I'm a success that I really made it. And the reality is, is many fold. One of the realities is that the early days are often the most fun. So I now run a company of about 60 people and it's great. It's lovely. It's a really great company. I'm incredibly proud of what we built, but am I having more fun than I did when we were four people than when we were 10 people? Absolutely not. In many ways, I'm having less fun. It's more stress and overhead and complication to run a company of 60 people than it is to run one of 10 people. Of course, small is wonderful. Small is beautiful. Small is enough in and of itself. And I wish that there were more entrepreneurs who could look at a company of, say, five people and go like, you know what? This is great. Let's just stop here. We did that when we reached about 50 people at Basecamp. At, when we were 50 people at Basecamp, several years back, we had four active major projects, products. We had Basecamp, we have a CRM system called HiRise, we had a, a sort of organization system called Backpack, we had a chat system called Campfire, we had all these things. And we were realizing that time, okay, Basecamp in particular is growing fast. These other things were growing pretty good too. If we want to do all these things, we can't do it with 50 people. We got to hire a bunch more people. Maybe we got to hire 20 more people. Maybe we're going to hire 30 more people to make it happen. And that would be the default assumption. Hey, business is booming. Of course you hire more people. Of course you grow. Revenues, you can go get all these things better. And we took the opposite approach and said like, do you know what? No, this is enough. 50 people is a great place to be. 50 people is a place where we don't have to install an entire layer of middle management who's just focused on, on, on management. So what if we just stop there? And that's exactly what we did. We divested ourselves of all the other products. We shut some of them down. We tried to spin one of them off and we focused just on Basecamp and said like, you know what? This is enough. And that is such a weird, bizarre, atypical response to success in America, right? The, right. the typical response is, oh, you got a lot? Let's get more. You got more? Let's get even more, right? Like that there's no bounds to the level of ambition. Even that word ambition sounds like something that's just an unqualified good. We use it to describe people favorably all the time. Oh, wow. He or she's really ambitious as though that was just an unqualified good thing. Well, ambitious is also a deep, dark hole that will swallow the notion of enough. If you can never get satisfaction about what you've built because you're always chasing the next thing, you will end up continuously, well, miserable. Right? Why would we want to do that? Like Basecamp has been around for 20 years now. For the past, I don't know, 15 years, it had done well enough and so on that, that Jason and I kind of didn't need to do it. Right? We could have mm -hmm. retired and started 
playing golf, probably not do race cars, but um, <laughs> that, that, that will deplete even a large fortune and make it into a small fortune very quickly. But you could do a lot of things and you could just be like, wait, do you know what? Um, that's what I'm going to do. So the realization was from a quite early stage in the company, like we don't need to be here. I'm only going to show up for work tomorrow if I want to be here. And it can't be because I'm chasing another metric. It can't be because I'm chasing another goal. No, let's throw out all the goals about like what we want to grow it to, and let's install some virtues instead. Why am I here? I'm here because I want to make great software with awesome people and treat customers right. Those are three virtues I just mentioned for, for what you want to build, who you want to build it with, and who you want to build it for. Those can serve as the parameters that we um, gauge decisions on. Like, should we do this? Should we do that? Well, is it fun to do? Will our employees like it? Um, what will our customers think? This is one of the things you go back to some of these other weird things we've done, which is, for example, many, almost all actually, of the services we used to run, even when we shut them down, we allow customers to continue to use them. We have a system called Tadalist, which was this free to-do list manager that we launched back in 2006. I think in 2010, we shot it off for new signups. And now it's 2020, and there's still about 1,000 people using it a week. We just, we just kept running it because you know what? This is one of the things I wish I could have had sometimes. Uh, most people who've been on the internet long enough have been through the experience of getting kicked off or kicked out, evicted from the software that they were using because the company either shut down or went in a different direction or got bought or was made by Google, which seems to change its <laughs> mind every five minutes about what kind of software it wants to run in this world. And it's right. like, you know what? Damn what they call it. Exactly. That that's like, I don't want to be part of that. We can do something else. It doesn't make sense from like a a business sense in the strict terms, right? Like there's not a great return on that uh, in, in economic sense, but there's a wonderful return on that in a emotional sense about the kind of company that we have and run. And, and so much of that comes from this base of we've got enough. We don't have to keep squeezing. Like, ah, can we squeeze a little more money out of this? No, we've, we've gotten enough out of it, right? Like I, I'm... We've gotten more than enough, in fact, right? Like it's been more than enough for a very long time. And being able to pivot from that, like I fully understand and I shared the same thing when we got started with Basecamp, none of us were rich. We all had to work and I didn't have that much money to, to my name. And when we got to the point where got a million dollars, like that was a change, right? Like a real change in life. It was the last of a change that I think most people will realize, although... I will caveat that by saying I was never exposed to the cruelty or brutality that is American poverty. So I fully understand where the sort of like primal scream comes from about escaping that. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it is very worthwhile. But the problem is once you've taught yourself that like you're on that chase, most people don't just stop, right? They don't stop like once they reach the quote unquote goal. They'll just double whatever that was. And then that's the new goal. There was this wonderful study done by, I forget who it was, but talked to a bunch of people at different levels of wealth. And they asked someone with $100,000, what do you need in your life to feel truly satisfied? The person with $100,000 said, do you know what? If I had $200,000, boom, I, I'd be set. I would feel really calm. Then they asked the person who had a million dollars, what do you need? 
Like, do you know what? If I had $2 million, bam, I'd be set. Then they asked the person with $10 million, how much you need? Well, $20 million, right? We fool ourselves into thinking like that. If we can just make that next step, then we're going to be content. Then we're going to be satisfied. Then it's going to be enough. And the matter of the fact is that no, it requires more than that, right? Like there's not a number you're going to reach. And then that automatically frees you from the rest of this rapid hole or, or treadmill. You have to choose that for yourself. Um, and that's something I feel very proud about the fact that we've done with Basecamp, that both Jason and I, thankfully, given the fact that we're partners in this business, reached that conclusion at around the same time that like we've got enough. So now we can make different choices for the business. We can do things that don't quote unquote make sense just because they're fun, just because it's good for employees, just because it's interesting to do and not have to worry about, well, what does that mean for the next quarter or the next quarter, right? Like one of the questions I often get when I talk about this is, well, what, what, what if like Zuckerberg came along and said, I'll trade you Basecamp even up for Facebook. And everyone would go like, of course you're going to take that, right? Like Facebook is worth like half a trillion dollars or something. It'd be a no-brainer trade. And I'd be like, first of all, have you, have you seen Zuckerberg lately? <laughs> he looked like the most miserable person when he's in front of Congress for the third time this month, right? Like I'm not interested in that problem. Um, in fact, I'm like actively disinterested in the specific problem of Facebook. Um, but it's one of those things that's so hard for someone to understand until they've broken through this barrier of enough, until they've even conceptualized the idea that it is possible to get to enough, it is so hard for them to say, well, this other thing is worth more. Of course you take it, right? It's the same thing that drives this idea in the US about, well, everything's got a price, right? And we're, we're basically, we're just down to haggling, right? Like everything has a price, no matter what or no matter who, there's a price. And you just need to find that price. Like it's such a single-minded uh, notion of what is living that I find it just, I mean, poor, right? Like, uh, this is a poor way to go through life and we can mm -hmm. choose another outlook. And I think that this is one of those areas where we talked about philosophy. It's a great way to open your mind to different ways of thinking about the world and your place in it. I like that this point isn't just for work. This point is also for life, how to avoid the crazy on either side. Um, and really just to re-quote it, it's calm requires getting comfortable with enough. And I think that that for all the listeners today is really a big takeaway to sit back and to digest that and really think about it. David, so before we end this episode, this has been a lot of fun. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, I'd say that for anyone starting out, getting rid of this sense of insecurity that like, you have to act like someone big or you have to chase someone big it is really a lot about what we're trying to instill and impart into people through our writings and through our lessons as someone who've gone through from freelance project to tiny company to medium-sized company. Um, I can tell you that it can be great at all the levels. There's so much of it that is just in your head and how you choose to perceive where you are in it. Um, and so much of that is voluntary, right? Like so many people, they run an autopilot and they're just, they're instilled with a certain ideology that gives them a, an outlook on life and on the world. And they're just like, this is the world. No, it's not. You can choose to make your world something else. This is one of the grand liberating thoughts of humanity. Mm -hmm 
is that we can choose to perceive the world in a different way. And it's like within our power that we can look at something like a, a, a small freelance business that does $100,000 a year and go like, wow, this is amazing. Or we can choose to look at that and go like, I'm so miserable. Why are we only doing this? Why can't I do no more, right? And like, it all just happens up there in your skull. So level up that head, level up your outlook on life and everything actually gets a lot easier. That's great, man. David, thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate your time today. All right, thanks so much for having me. David has an unconventional outlook on how to run a business to say the least. I've already implemented a lot of what he shared with us during this episode, and I found it to be extremely helpful with my SaaS startup, Podmatch. After talking with David, I changed the way I've been handling some things internally and externally with the business, and it's helped me really set the right culture from the beginning. So I hope you also took a lot from this episode. David, thank you again for being a guest and debunking the myth that work always has to be crazy. Instead, we can set a culture that can be calm and productive. To pick up a copy of David Hannemeyer Hansen's book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, please visit creatingabrand.com slash 080. Thank you as always for listening. I'm looking forward to bringing you another Masterclass episode next week. Next week.